The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we learn about how the human singing voice works, what makes us produce pretty pitches, and why do our voices wobble as we get older. We'll speak with voice scientist Ingo Tietze to get the answer. But first, why don't monkeys talk? We'll speak with W. Tecumseh Fitch about what it would sound like if a monkey could speak. The answer? Really, really creepy. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a writer with Science News and Society for Science and the Public. Oh, what did to do to die today at a minute or two to two? A thing distinctly hard to say, but harder still to do. Speech is a really impressive thing. Right now, as I'm talking to you, I'm inhaling through my nose, passing that air through my lungs, sending it back out via my throat. On the way, the air passes through my vocal cords and they flap back and forth in such a way that I make noise. Noise that comes out as words that I hope make sense to you. How exactly does that happen? How do we take air into our lungs and turn it into words coming out? And what is the difference between species that can do it and species that can't? To find out, I'm here with W. Tecumseh a cognitive biologist at the University of Vienna in Austria. Tecumseh, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. First, I was wondering if we could start with a rundown of how a mammal's throat produces a sound. What kind of body parts are really required? Well, the basic idea is the same for all mammals, and it's relatively straightforward. The air from your lungs, when you just exhale, is normally silent. But if you bring the little flaps of tissue called the vocal folds, or sometimes called the vocal cords, if you bring those together, those are inside your larynx, and they partially block the airflow. And that makes them blow apart. And then they, because they're somewhat elastic, they come back together. And basically, they blow open and closed in the same way that your lips do if you go or a balloon does if you let the air out and you hold that tight. So that's a simple, um, relatively passive process of air passing through this constriction. And that's what creates the pitch of your voice, the fundamental frequency, which is the rate at which your vocal folds are slapping together, is um, coming out of your larynx. So that's your larynx or your voice box. The next part of this process is the part that's maybe a little less intuitive because we can't really see this happening. But the air above the vocal cords, um, the, the space of air between your throat, in your mouth, and in your nose, also um, changes the sound. And that it does so by something by, by um, a phenomenon called formant frequencies. Formant frequencies are resonances of this air that's enclosed in your vocal tract. And there are multiple formant frequencies that make up human speech. And altogether, those formant frequencies are called the filter. So what we do when we speak is we change the shape of our vocal tract such that we move our tongue forward and backwards. We can open and close our nose. We can make our lips very, uh, make the opening between our lips very small or very wide. And all of those change these formant frequencies. So they change the filter. And that the so the crucially what human speech involves or really dogs barking or anything else is first a source sound produced in the larynx and then that's filtered by these formant frequencies in the vocal tract. And that's kind of the physical process, but there are also brain inputs as well. What do we know about 
how the neural connections kind of matter in producing speech? Well, this system that I told you about is one of the most complex bits of anatomy in the human body. So the vocal, the, the, the larynx itself has many muscles inside and they do things like open and close the, the space between the vocal folds, put increasing tension on the vocal folds, change the shape of the vocal folds. So all of these little muscles inside of your larynx are important, for example, in singing or in controlling your pitch. So if you say hello versus hello, that's all being done by your by your larynx, by the muscles in your larynx. But another set of muscles control your tongue and your lips and the little port in the back of your nasal cavity called the velum. And all of those muscles are what need to be activated in order to move your tongue around and change your lip configuration, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so all of these muscles need to be very closely coordinated, very finely coordinated in time for the final human speech output to be produced. And despite a lot of people trying for a very long time, humans are the only primate that has mastered the spoken word. There have been two hypotheses for why this might be the case, and one of them, the neural hypothesis, was actually endorsed by Charles Darwin. What is that hypothesis? Well, Darwin actually considered both hypotheses, two different hypotheses. One is that there's something out in the vocal anatomy itself, whether in the shape of the vocal folds or the shape of the tongue or the configuration of the lips or whatever, that makes it impossible for a chimpanzee or a monkey to produce sound. So that looks call that the anatomical hypothesis. That's about the, the periphery, the, the actual instrument that produces the sound. And the other is that the neural control over that instrument um, changed. So we can think of this as sort of analogous to, you can have a cheap violin or a fancy violin, um, but if you give me a Stradivarius, I still won't be able to make beautiful music because I'm not a violin player and I don't have the neural control over my fingers to play a Stradivarius like a master. And so the same thing is true in the case of our voices. You may have, or a species or a person may have a wonderful voice apparatus, a wonderful instrument, but lack the neural control over that instrument to be able to do amazing things with it. So I think that's an easy way to understand what we're talking about here. Um, and the other hypothesis that you talked about, the anatomical or peripheral hypothesis, was kind of the prevailing hypothesis for a good while based on this 1969 paper um, by Lieberman et al. proposing that non-human primates just don't have kind of the vocal mechanics. I was wondering if you could kind of walk me through a little bit of that 1969 paper. How did they come to that conclusion? Well, it's uh, let's let's be careful here because I think it's important to to point out that the conclusions reached in that classic 1969 paper by Lieberman and his colleagues were actually quite a bit more careful than the conclusions that many people drew from that paper. So what what the Lieberman et al. paper concluded is that monkeys don't have the vocal apparatus to produce all the sounds of human speech, and in particular that they would lack the capability of, of because their anatomy is limited, they would lack the capability to make a set of discriminable vowels, and in particular the, the uh, vowels that are most common in human languages like e, ah, and oo. So they didn't say that a monkey couldn't produce some kind of speech. They just said that a monkey couldn't produce very clear human speech. Now that was picked up in the literature, and you'll find it now, I, I would call it a kind of urban legend, that the reason chimpanzees can't talk is because they just don't have the vocal anatomy. But Lieberman was more careful than that. So I think it's important to distinguish between what the study claimed 
And the conclusion that the, the field as a whole, or that at least many people in the field, drew from that study. That's, I'm really glad that you're very careful about that. But to, in order to test this, they actually made a plaster cast of a monkey's throat, right? That's right. So they, they had to work with a dead monkey. So they took a monkey that had died. They filled its vocal tract with uh, plaster, or uh, yeah, I guess with plaster. And then once then they removed that and they had a cast of the monkey's vocal tract, they sliced that up and they were able to make a computer model based on that um, single cast of the dead monkey. And then they sort of perturbed that computer model. They made some estimates based on playing around with an anesthetized monkey about how much that shape could be changed. And I think that was the, the weakness of their approach is that they didn't really have any way of knowing what the different flex, what the flexibility of a monkey's vocal tract really is. They were basically working from this cast of a dead monkey. And why did you decide specifically to kind of take on this question yourself? Well, I was a PhD student with Phil Lieberman. Um, and so I learned this, I, this, I kind of cut my teeth on this material. So I, I've read his work, all of his work very carefully. And I found it all very convincing. But when we were teaching this, I started to have various questions. And one of the questions was, can we really judge the capabilities of an animal by looking at the dead animal? And, you know, I think both common sense and my strong intuition said, well, maybe that's not enough. And so after I left, after I finished my PhD, I was up at Harvard and I was lucky enough to work with uh, A.W. Crompton, a.k.a. Fuzz Crompton, which is what everyone calls him. And he had a beautiful x-ray system for working with animals. And we were finally able to get some animals vocalizing in that. And what we saw was an amazing flexibility in the vocal tract configuration of dogs, of monkeys, and of goats. We could, we could see, for example, that in all of these species, the larynx was pulled down during vocalization such that it, their vocal tract looked much more similar to that of a human being. So we published that study back in 2000, and I kind of thought that, that you know, this illustrates that you can't just look at the dead animal, um, that the actual capabilities of an animal are much wider than you would think just looking at a, at a, at a um, cadaver. But the field didn't seem to get that message. So I guess 10 years later, I'm still waiting for everybody to stop putting in the textbooks that the reason animals can't talk is because their vocal tract anatomy isn't there. And it just didn't seem to be happening. It didn't seem to be taking root. And so we had an opportunity to do scanning of macaques, which are the same species that, um, that Phil Lieberman worked with, monkey species that Phil Lieberman worked with. We had this opportunity to do x-rays of them while they were vocalizing. And I thought, okay, here's, here's Here's our big chance to really correct this misinterpretation of that original study by gathering the data from a living animal where we can really see the, the, what the animal does. And that's what we did in our study. In many ways, our study was very similar to that of Lieberman because um, we took uh, estimates of the vocal tract shape and we put those into a computer model. So in many ways, we did the same thing that Lieberman did. The crucial difference is that instead of having one plaster cast of a dead monkey, we had 100 x-rays of a living monkey doing all kinds of different things with his vocal tract, eating, um, vocalizing, doing different vocalizations, also doing things like their lip smacks, which they do that are um, these little 
things that they do that are actually quite complicated, uh, yawning, grimacing, all the different capabilities of a living vocal tract where we, we were able to find in our x-rays. So we use that as the input to our computer model. That's the real difference between our study and that of Phil Lieberman and his colleagues. And how did you get these monkeys to do all the calls and motions that you had them do in these live video x-rays? Well, that's the, that's the part of this that's an art rather than a science. Um, we had the best luck. So it's, it's easy to get them to eat. You just, you just give them food and they eat it. So that part wasn't too hard. And, you know, occasionally they'll just yawn because they're bored. Um, but the hard thing is to get them vocalizing and get them making their communicative gestures like these lip smacks. It turned out that if we had the main caretaker of the, of the monkeys leave the room and then come back, they would make the lip smacks as a kind of greeting when they came back in. They would also often make grunts when we showed them food. So that's a, a sort of way of getting your attention and indicating that they're they're interested in that food. Um, and they do coos when they if often if they hear another monkey off in the distance, they'll make these coos. So that was the hard part was just getting all these diff- this different range of motions. But that's what we finally were able to do. And you plugged all of this X-ray data into a computer model. What were you kind of looking for with this model? Well, it's funny you say we plugged it into a computer model. It's actually a lot more work than that. So first of all, we had to trace all of these x-rays to get the shapes. Then we had and we had an MRI so that we could make them into 3D shapes. Um, and then we had to write the computer code to make this model. It's not like you can go down to, to you know, there's not Microsoft monkey computer model available, unfortunately. So we had to do that all of ourselves. But once we had this computer model based on the what we actually saw the monkey doing, we could, well, for example, we could ask what variety of vowels can this can this vocal tract make, um, and use the extreme parts of that vocal tra- of the sort of vocal tract space that we were able to model to say, okay, here would be the five most different vowels from this vocal tract. Or we could even take human speech and ask, okay, if if a monkey, if our monkey model tried its best to imitate this speech, what would it sound like? So, we, you know, there's a lot you can do with a model like this. So you're saying I can't just go to the iPhone app store and download monkey voice. I am shocked. <laughs> yeah, not yet, but maybe there maybe there's a, a commercial possibility there. If you want to make your um, mother-in-law sound like a monkey, you could you could do it with this, or a dog, or a or a rabbit. Now you compared the macaque voice to a human female voice in your paper. Why did you choose a human female and not a male or a child? Well, basically, we were trying to get the vocal tract. Uh, lengths as close as possible. And so human males have a longer vocal tract because the larynx descends in males further at puberty than it does in females. So it made sense to use females. Also, female speech is more intelligible than male speech or child speech. So that was, it was basically, um, you know, what was, what was handy and what was available. We actually used my wife's voice as the model for some of our Thing. So it also just happened to be that I had a woman with a more or less appropriate vocal tract length easily available to make the recordings. But in principle, we could do the same thing with a, a child's voice or with a man's voice. But then we'd have to stretch the monkeys, the monkey model much more to match the to match the vocal tract lengths. And in the end, you did say you came up with five vowels that the monkey could perform. What were these and how do they compare with human vowels? 
Well, they're very much the kinds of vowels that we use all the time in, in English, in a language like English. So essentially, they're not, I, I'll, they're not exactly the same as the monkey vowels because the monkey vocal tract is still a bit shorter and its shape is different from ours. But they're close to the vowels i, e, a, uh, and ah. So as in the words bit, bat, bot, but, you know, these normal English words. Right. And in your computer uh, model, you also came up with specific consonants um, that the monkeys could make. Are there any human consonants that are missing from the monkey vocabulary or are they all there? That is a more difficult question to answer. So no one, we, we certainly know that uh, any animal vocal tract could make enough consonants, enough basic consonants like pa versus ba or ta versus da. That wouldn't, that wouldn't be a limit. Whether there are specific consonants like ch in Arabic or something like that that a monkey couldn't make, I think remains an open question. But for our purposes, the key thing is that there are enough vowels and consonants to make a wide variety of words. That's the crucial question for whether you could start talking. Um, and in the same way that a German speaker doesn't have the th or the sound, and so they say z or s, you know, and, um, let me think of an example. This and that, you know, instead of saying this and that. So there are probably things like that, that if a monkey were speaking English, they would have funny consonants and slightly funny vowels. But that wouldn't prevent you from understanding it any more than it prevents you from understanding a human speaker who has an accent. And you had those five vowels, but you did find that the monkeys could not make kind of an E sound as in, as in the word beat. Um, why not? Is there a shape missing? Well, that that's the, the E sound. I should say all we used for our model were the actual shapes that we observed the monkey making. So what we what we can't say with any certainty is that a monkey couldn't make an E. All we can say is that in the hours that we spent watching and x-raying, we didn't see the monkey make an E. So I think it's an, that's an important distinction. So I, I, we, we didn't prove that monkeys can't make an E. All we can say is, using this very conservative, what did we actually see the monkey doing? We didn't see any E's produced. And this is the, the argument is that if the posterior and uh, if the front and the back part of your vocal tract aren't roughly the same length, then you can't make an E vowel. And since the monkey's back, the back part of the monkey's vocal tract is shorter than the front part because monkeys have more of a snout than we do, um, that, that would, that would be an explanation for why they can't produce E. And you have some examples for us that you've made as a result of these, uh, computer inputs, right? Yes. Um, so I don't, what I, what I have prepared for you right now are examples illustrating source and filter, but we didn't get to use those back when I was explaining how this, how the voice works. Um, do you still want to do that? Yes. So can you talk to me a little bit about, um, the difference between source and filter and why you made these examples? Yes. So the, I think everybody understands intuitively what the source is. The source, when, when, when you, when your vocal folds slap together faster, your voice goes higher. And when they slap together slower, the voice goes lower. So that's the difference between, oh, that was just changing my source. That was changing my, the pitch of my voice or the fundamental frequency to be more technical. What's harder to get your head around is what the formant frequency sound like. And what I do when I change my vowels is I change specific formant frequencies. So as my voice goes from E to A to O, what I'm doing is changing the formant frequencies. 
So to illustrate this, to make this very clear, I've, I've concocted these examples where what I've done is I've taken uh, my own human voice, and I'll play you an example in a second. I've taken my human voice and I've split it apart into source and filter. And once I have the filter, I can combine that with other sources and see what it sounds like. So here's the original human speech where the source and the filter are fused together in the output sound. Where in the hell are you? Okay, I'll play that again. Where in the hell are you? So that's source and filter together. But now if I remove the filter, if I separate the filter and I, and I play this bison's roar through my human filter, here's the bison's roar. Now if I put that together with my filter, I get this. Where in the hell are you? Okay, I'll do it again. Here's the bison. Here's the bison plus my formants. Where in the hell are you? And just for another example, here's a narwhal. And here's the narwhal plus my formants. So what I hope you can hear is that most of the, the speech content, the linguistic content, content is being carried by the filter. You can still hear the source. You can tell that it was a bison or a human or a narwhal, but it doesn't change the message. So the message is, the, the message is being gotten across by these uh, formant frequencies, by these time-varying formant frequencies. I have to say, no matter what, those two sound really, really creepy. Yes, well, animals talking does tend to, tend to sound kind of weird. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a horror show creepy right there. Especially the bison. It was, woo. <laughs> yep. Now, um, so when you were looking in your monkey x-rays, were you looking for the format frequency changes yeah. there? Yes, that's what we're doing is modeling the format frequency space of the monkey. That's exactly what we're doing. We're modeling the filter. Okay. And so what you found was that these monkeys do have kind of the right filter. Um, well, though it would probably have a very strong accent. Yeah, they have, they have a very flexible filter, which means they can do lots of things with their filter. And the old idea was that their filter was so limited that the only vowel they could make was basically, uh, and we now know that's not the case. But obviously, monkeys still don't talk. Right. What is now, missing? So now, what, what our experiment is really a, a long, hard way of showing that the instrument, the, the vocal tract of a monkey, would be capable of producing a wide range of, of speech sounds and of producing intelligible speech. What's lacking, therefore, we infer, is that they don't have the neural control over that instrument just like I can't play a Stradivarius and make anything nice come out, they don't have the neural control to play their instrument in a way that makes them produce intelligible speech. What is kind of required for that neural control? Do we know? Well, we don't know for sure, but the leading hypothesis in the field is, has been around for quite a long time, and there's quite a lot of evidence that supports it. And that is the idea that in order to have good control over your vocal tract and your larynx, you need to have direct connections from the motor cortex onto the, the neurons that control the muscles within the vocal tract and the, and the larynx. And in most animals, in a cat or a dog or a chimpanzee or a monkey, there are only indirect connections. So there, there are connections from the motor cortex via various interneurons onto the muscles that control the larynx. But only in humans do we have these direct connections straight from our motor cortex. Only in humans, uh, in, among primates, I should say, do we have these uh, these direct connections onto the motor neurons of the, of the larynx and the vocal, uh, vocal tract. So the idea is without having uh, volitional neural control, cortical control over your voice source 
in your voice filter, you won't be able to imitate sounds in your environment and you won't have the kind of control to make new sounds and, and make them sound like something that you've already heard. Now, you mentioned specifically that there's a direct connection between the motor cortex and some of these fine motor control mechanisms in the larynx. Are there any similarities here between the connections from the brain to the larynx in humans and connections between brain and, say, the fine motor control that we have in our hands? Are there any similarities in those systems? Absolutely. So so if you look, for example, at a cat, um, they also don't have – they well, so humans have direct connections onto our fingers, and that's why we can play the piano and type. We have individual control over our individual fingers. And if you look in the brain, you find that we also have direct cortical connections onto the muscles, onto the neurons that control the muscles of our fingers. Those aren't present in in cats. They aren't present in lots of mammals. Um, They aren't even present in some monkeys. And what that means is that a cat can't individually move its fingers. It can only grasp with its hand as a whole. Now, if you look in... Some non-human primates, so for example in capuchin monkeys or in macaques or in chimpanzees, they do have individual finger control. So these direct connections are present in their hands in a chimpanzee. They're just not present to the uh, neurons that control the voice. Do we know why they just haven't kind of evolved along the same lines in terms of vocal control that we have? Nope. We don't really understand either the development, um, so what, what controls the existence of these direct connections or the lack of them, nor do we understand from an evolutionary point of view what drives it. So those are both open questions. And you were working specifically with long-tailed macaques for this study, um, as Lieberman did in his original study. Do you think that other non-human primates, I'm thinking things like chimpanzees, for example, might show different results? Uh, I doubt it. If anything, I would expect the chimpanzee vocal tract potential to be even greater because chimpanzees have excellent control over their lips. They have these very long protuberant lips. And if you watch chimpanzees eating, it's just amazing what they can do with their lips. So I would expect that if anything, it would be even the, 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 the um, vocal tract potential would be even greater in a chimpanzee than we found in a macaque, in our macaques. But by the way, they, they, they're actually two different species of macaques. So we work with Longtail and Phil Lieberman work with Rhesus. So in both cases, it's macaques, but and they would look about the same to you, but they're not exactly the same species. And why do we want to do these comparisons? What, what really gets you interested in looking at kind of the speech capabilities of non-human primates? Well, for me, that's not actually the fundamental question. So I'm interested in understanding why we have the kind of control we have over our voices. But my interest in animal production isn't whether they can do what humans do. I'm interested in what they can do in and of itself. So we study lots of different species, most of which can do something we can't do. So, for example, squirrel monkeys have a nine-octave range, or howler monkeys have this huge larynx, and they can make very low, loud vocalizations. So, it's for me, the, the fundamental interest isn't can monkeys do what we do, but just what is it that makes each species special, and what, 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 are, what's, what are the physiological and physical underpinnings of that specialness, and also what, why do these things evolve? Why do some species have these weird tricks of their voice and not others? So that's the more general framework of bioacoustics that I'm working within. And why does that matter in terms of the differences between non-human primates and humans? 
Well, if we want to understand how human speech and human spoken language evolved, we first need to know what the differences are between humans, uh, humans and chimpanzees so that we can essentially rebuild our common ancestor with chimpanzees. We do that by using the comparative method. And we can try and understand what our starting point was back six or seven million years ago. What was our starting point and what changed in that intervening time? And we can only do that by comparing ourselves to, to our nearest living relatives. Once we have a short list of what changed, then we can start to ask questions about, okay, why did this change? What were the, the uh, physiological or the neural changes? And also what were the genetic changes that were involved? And that is, provides us one way of making sense sense of the question of the evolution of human speech and of human language. Well, thank you so much. This was really, really fascinating. Great. It was my pleasure. We have vocal recordings from Dr. Fitch's study. The recordings are a computer-generated version of the voice of an adult macaque compared to a human woman. They are both saying the phrase, will you marry me, which ends up being more than a little bit sinister for some reason. You will hear first the monkey and then the woman. Will you marry me? If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Fitch's work, we have linked to his site and information about his research at scienceforthepeople.ca. When we get back, we'll head over to the fully human side of the vocal tract to hear more about what it is that makes our voices sing. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back. Can you sing? Maybe you can't. Maybe you really, really can't. But regardless, do you know how it works? What's the difference between talking and singing? Why do some people's voices wobble and other people's don't? Before you start in on your holiday caroling, we're here to provide you with some answers. I'm here with Ingo Tietze, a vocologist at the University of Iowa, and he's also the executive director of the National Center for Voice and Speech. And now I'm feeling a lot of performance anxiety over my speaking voice. Ingo, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it. a time to chat with you. And don't worry about your voice. I think it's great. <laughs> Thank you. So let's start with an overview. If you're going to produce a sound, what do you do? What's the process? Well, you have a few things in your head. Uh, you think high, low, or loud, soft. And in addition to those two variables, you probably think something about um, do you want to produce it in a call-like production, like with a chest voice or more falsetto-like, uh, that's more flute-like. But we don't have too many more variables in our head. A lot of it just uh, comes uh, because we have uh, produced sound for a long period of time, and the motor system has just sort of organized itself. And what happens in the motor system when we, you know, when I when I start talking to you, what's what's going on? Like, what's coming out exactly? Well, uh, from the brain, we get signals to the muscles in the larynx, and there, uh, the larynx has five intrinsic muscles, and they control the length of the vocal folds, which in turn con- controls 
the uh, the pitch. Uh, they control how much you press the vocal folds together, and that gives a little bit of distinction between a breathy voice and a pressed voice. Um, and then, of course, loudness is controlled by how much lung pressure you put behind the whole thing. And all of that is done very rapidly by a motor program uh, determined by how many times you have done that same sort of vocalization. And we often think of producing a sound when we think of speaking, for example, but we produce a lot of sounds when we sing. Is there a difference in the way sound is produced between speaking and singing? Why do they sound so different? Well, first of all, in singing, most of the time the vowels are elongated. Uh, in speech, we try to get as much information from one person to another over a short distance. And so we have used a lot of articulation and the articulation with our uh, tongue, lips, jaw, uh, involves a lot of um, sounds that are not vowels, but are consonants. But in singing, uh, our strategy and our desire is to get a bigger sound uh, and often over a longer distance to the listener. And so vowels become more important uh, and they are elongated almost uh, you know, categorically. And and, and, and and the pitch is generally higher for singing than it is for speaking. And there's also a difference between high and low voices, because it sounds like we have we all have the same equipment in there. But there's a pretty drastic difference between my voice, say, and your voice, um, between the voice of a small child and the voice of a, you know, adult double bass. What's the physiological difference between a high voice and a low voice? The most uh, important physiological uh, variable in that is the uh, the length of the vocal folds. So uh, everything else being equal, long vocal folds will produce a lower pitch. And uh, because males, when they go through puberty, uh, lengthen their vocal folds quite a bit more than women do, um, they will generally then have about a 60, 70 percent lower pitch. Do we know why vocal cords in vocal folds in males get longer during adolescence? Well, I mean, it's part of the genetic makeup and it, it's uh, over, you know, many, many years of evolution that this has taken place. Humans apparently wanted to uh, distinguish uh, vocalization between genders. That is to say, uh, probably males wanted to sound uh, su such that they would be interpreted as being large and strong. And uh, that has two purposes. One, it wards off competitors for females. And the other is it attracts females, uh, assuming that females like low sounds. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I can't speak for that. But, uh, but that's not the case in every species. There are situations where you don't see much, hear much difference between male and female. For example, in dogs, uh, you can't say that, that the male dog is generally much lower in pitch than the female dog. So it depends on uh, the species and what their um, pressures are in terms of survival in the environment in which they live. Altos, they're the lower uh, female voice part. Um, their vocal folds are going to be a little bit longer and their necks might be a little bit longer. Um, could a soprano who might be a little bit shorter in there. I mean, could she sing alto? Could she lengthen her vocal folds? Is that a thing that you can do? Uh, well, you you have some choices uh, um, over, you know, using your muscles and, and changing the length. 
Um, and I mean, the short answer is yes, you can imitate almost any other voice part. But the point is, do you feel comfortable there? We, in, as musicians, we talk a lot, a lot about our tessitura, which is Italian for texture, but it really means where we're comfortable uh, with the pitches that we sing. And uh, if you vo- if your voice uh, has a certain tessitura and you force it to be different, um, then uh, you may not be as comfortable, last as long, or be as believable as if you're in your own tessitura. And within a single person's tessitura, um, there are kind of the parts of a single person's singing voice. So I've often heard it described as chest voice, middle voice, and head voice. What are these three different voices? Okay, in the so-called chest voice, we have um, the vocal folds vibrating lower. Um, from uh, the, the vocal folds are thicker. Uh, in their vibrating uh, tissue, and so they make better contact at the bottom, and that uh, makes the uh, shut off of the space between the vocal folds longer, and that produces uh, more high frequencies or a stronger sound with that, and that's sort of the chest uh, voice. It comes from a from a call, hey, basically that kind of a sound, um, but. You can also um, let go of the muscle that brings that bottom vo- part of the vocal together and produce the falsetto sound. Hey! And then only the top of the vocal fold is in vibration, and there's a ligament in there that helps to determine what the pitch will be. So it's a, w- a way of organizing the, uh, the morphology or the structure of the vocal folds so that either part or all of it is in vibration. And while most people who listen to, say, pop music don't hear this very often, in classical music, and certainly anyone who's ever heard a parody of an opera will have heard the voice wobble that we refer to as vibrato. Mm-hmm. What is vibrato? How does that work? Well, uh, mechanistically, we think it begins, first of all, with um, a tremor that comes from the brain. Uh, all of our muscles in our body get a constant uh, source of tremor frequencies. Um, most of the time, they're sub-threshold and we don't pay attention to them, but they're always there. For example, if you take a, a pointer, a laser pointer, and hold it against the screen, you know that you can't hold it steady. It vibrates back and forth all the time. And that little tremor can be actually cultivated in the voice to become a vibrato. And what happens is the reflexes in uh, the larynx, uh, and the reflexes here I'm talking about are between two muscles, the cricothyroid and the thyroritinoid. They play against each other like a little ping pong game. And they take that tremor that comes from the brain and exaggerate it and regulate it a little bit so that it becomes more um, artistic and more uh, vibrato-like instead of just a tremor that you'd find in, in a pathology. I have to say, the more you talk about all of these muscles kind of slamming into each other. It all sounds very violent in there. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I hope not. <laughs> now, uh, you've actually studied vibrato yourself, and you've done this by putting needles into people's throats. Can you tell us about that study? <laughs> well, um, I'm not a physician, so I did not put the needles in people's throat. I had a very qualified uh, physician from Japan uh, who's still alive and is very famous, Minoru Hirano, 
who came to our lab and did the actual insertion. But what the insertion is, you, you start with a hypodermic needle, and in that needle are two fine, very, very fine uh, wires, uh, a pair of wires, and they have a hook on the end. And when you uh, put the needle into the muscle and then carefully take out the needle, then the little hooked wires stay inside. And with those two small wires, smaller than a hair, you can pick up the electrical signal uh, that uh, produces the contraction of the muscle. And therewith, then you can determine how much any one of the muscles in the larynx is activated. And what were you looking for in this study? Well, we're looking for how, if, if, pertaining to vibrato, we're looking for how uh, much there's interaction between these two muscles uh, that are opposing muscles for pitch control. Uh, one of them, the cricothyroid, raises the pitch. The other one lowers the pitch. And we wanted to know what is the relationship between their contraction. Uh, do they contract in opposite uh, time frames? For example, when one turns on, does the other one turn off and so forth? Um, and also, what is the nature of the uh, repetition of these uh, contractions? And come from that, can we determine what the rate of the vibrato is? And, and uh, what did yeah, you find? We found that uh, due to the reflexes that exist between these two muscles, we can predict a vibrato rate of about five, six, seven hertz, which is in fact what is found in most singers. And you actually volunteered to be a study subject for this particular study, yes? Yes, I did. I, I sat in a dental chair and and uh, and had all the needles uh, inserted into my larynx. And um, I don't recommend uh, too often the experimenter being the subject because um, you fatigue yourself a lot because you're so concerned about a good outcome of the experiment that the fatigue is more about that than it is about your own voice, actually. Now, the voice how does lasts it feel, though? Oh, um, I mean, there's, a, uh, there's a, an, some anesthetization that's put on the neck before the needle is inserted, and uh, then you don't feel very much of anything. A day or two later, you feel a little bit soreness in the neck, but it goes away pretty quick. So, because when I envisioned this, I envisioned kind of wires coming out of your mouth, but it was inserted directly through the front of the neck? Uh, right, yeah, right through the neck tissue uh, into the larynx uh, and, and and into the muscle. So, no, there's nothing coming out of the mouth. Uh, it, it, it's all uh, cutaneously, as they say, through through the uh, through the skin. And how many volunteers were brave enough to do this? <laughs> Uh, well, we don't usually get too many for this kind of study because it lasts too long. Uh, but in the particular study I'm talking about, uh, we had like three subjects. And one of the things that's interesting about vocal wobble or vibrato is that it changes as you age. Um, so for example, small children singing in children's choirs, they have a very pure, clear sound. They have almost no vibrato. Um, there's a lot of vibrato that people get as they get older, and there's kind of this stereotype of a, of a little old lady in a church choir with a very wobbly voice. Why does that happen? Well, uh, the reflexes slow down when you get uh, older, and also the muscle contractions are not as smooth anymore. Uh, our muscles uh, become, uh, you know, we have fascicles, as they're called. Uh, those are little bundles of muscle fibers, and these fascicles uh, become uh, less uh, distributed and uh, rougher looking. And also, as I said, the reflexes slow down. So the combination 
of uh, slow reflexes affects the speed of the vibrato or the rate of it. So instead of having anything anywhere from 5 to 7 hertz, you, it may be down to 3 to 4. And we perceive that as the wobble. And then the roughness in the muscle contraction gives it even more um, uh, sort of a, a stronger fluctuation. Is there any way to prevent that or is it just a natural consequence of aging? I'm sure some of it you cannot prevent, but you can certainly make your voice uh, be fresh a lot longer uh, if you do the right exercises. Uh, and the straw exercises are perfect for that. Um, and all of the uh, singing exercises that people do. Uh, we have voices that are chronologically at age, you know, 85, but they still sound like people in their 50s. And then we have people that uh, sound like they're um, 85 and, and they are in their 50s. Now, you mentioned the straw thing, so I'm going to talk about it now. There is this YouTube video of you sitting in your office vocalizing through a straw. <laughs> What are you doing? Uh, well, it, it's, it's simple. You know, it's we, we all learn how to do these things. Uh, you you may have remember in, in your young days, you used a comb with a cellophane paper on it, and you blew air against the cellophane and make sound while you were doing it. Um, and what that does is it sort of brings the sound back from the lips back to the larynx. And that kind of feedback is very helpful to 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 get your your uh, pitch range better and to set up your larynx in a more ideal configuration. Um, the straw is just uh, one way of doing that. Literal is another. That again uh, uh, produces a pressure. Uh, behind the lips and that pressure is felt at the larynx and it helps to separate the vocal folds a little bit and you get a a, a better configuration for uh, getting the vocal folds to vibrate. Is there any correlation between how foolish someone looks or sounds when they are performing an exercise and its efficacy in terms of how well it helps train your voice? Wait a minute, a correlation between how foolish you look and and, and how good the outcome is? Is yes. that what you asked? <laughs> well, um, I'm not sure I can <laughs> give you exact uh, answer for that one, but I'll tell you this, that when I'm on an airplane and uh, I want to sing in another town when I get there, I use this straw because there are no heads turning. I can sit in the middle seat of a, a row of three and uh, I can do a straw exercise and uh, the people next to me won't pay attention to it. Why? Because the buzz that I make is so close to the buzz that we get in the airplane from the engines that they don't hear it. But if I were to do any other vocal exercise, <laughs> I would probably be, you know, taken out of the airplane. Um, well, so keep that in mind. Next time I go on tour, <laughs> I'll bring a straw. <laughs> yeah. And the same on the subway or anywhere else. Uh, you can walk down the street and do your straw exercises and nobody will pay attention to you. Now, most people, if they've heard people singing in kind of a classical manner or something that is not popular music, they may have heard musical theater. And one of the biggest things that you hear in musical theater is this concept called belting. Mm -hmm. What is belting? Well, belting comes from, first of all, from calling. And, and that's what how we know the word you know people at first said belt it out shout it out belt it out and uh, a belt is characterized acoustically by a strong second harmonic i don't know if you understand the uh no the concept of harmonics in the voice you have a fundamental frequency 
Then you have an overtone, which is called the second harmonic. Fundamental is the first harmonic. And then you have another overtone called the third harmonic and so forth. And as we make different uh, qualities of sound with our voice, um, we can strengthen one or the other or even a cluster of these harmonics. And what's characteristic of the call and also the belt in theater singing is the strong second harmonic, greater than the energy in the fundamental. That is starkly different from what uh, would be done in a classical sound that a female makes. There, most of the energy is in the fundamental or in the first harmonic. And speaking of various sounds that females make, we hear a lot about singers who injure their voices um, when they sing. And I'm thinking specifically of Adele. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the music of Adele, but it's awesome. And she has uh, had to have surgery, actually, um, to correct, I think, vocal nodes. Um, so can you talk through some of the common ki- the kinds of vocal injuries? The one that many people may have dealt with is that they lose their voice. What happens when you lose your voice? Well, vocal nodules, of course, are a direct response to too much collision between the vocal folds. So sometimes uh, people try to get a stronger sound by uh, just making a greater amplitude of vibration in, in their tissues, and then they collide those tissues. And if they do that over and over again, there's a chance then uh, that the tissue reacts, just like if you stress your hands too much with a tool, you get a blister. Um, so this is just a natural way in which the body uh, wants to protect itself by creating a, a thicker a structure there that when you get collision, it's not going to uh, make a, a more difficult pathology. Um, so is it like a but, callus on your vocal cords? Yeah, yeah, you can think of it as a, as a callus. Uh-huh. And usually they come on both sides because the good old uh, Newton's law says for every action on one body, there's an equal and opposite reaction on the other body. And so when you hit the vocal fold with one, one, from one side, you also get the same force on the other side. So they usually come in pairs, and they usually come in the middle of the vibrating section of the tissue and Um, what does that do to the voice like what is having vocal nodes on there do when someone tries to sing well it usually creates a rough voice and sometimes there's roughness and breathiness together because if the edges of the vocal folds don't come together from front to back equally and nicely uh, but they they come together first at at those nodules, then you still have air escaping on either side, and that will c- produce some breathiness. Um, so you get you get roughness and breathiness with the vo- with the nodule at times. And most people are probably most familiar not with vocal nodes, but with just losing their voice. Maybe they'll get a cold, or maybe they'll be shouting a lot somewhere, and the next day they their voice is gone. Um, how does that happen? What's going on? Well. Uh, sometimes it can be just simply that if you get an infection, uh, then the tissue becomes stiffer, uh, not, they're more viscous, as we say in, in the science world, and then it's more difficult to get the voice into or the tissue into vibration, even though you use the same lung pressure that you've always used. Um, sometimes a hemorrhage occurs. This happens with some of the best singers. Uh, their technique is flawless and wonderful, but they, uh, because of the strong pressures that exist in the vocal tract, uh, they really take that tissue and uh, throw it back and forth, and it's almost like a, a whiplash. And then uh, a blood vessel can uh, can burst, and that takes a while to heal. Um, so. 
Some of it, as you say, is, is it comes from infection. Some of it f- comes from overuse. How do you stop yourself from overusing your voice like that? Say you're at a conference or something and you're talking in a very loud environment. You know, the next day your voice is gone. H- how do you stop that from happening? Well, I personally um, have been a victim of that and uh, because the way I was uh, taught to talk in, in my home environment was with a very pressed voice. We, we all talked like this, basically, and around the table, the person that got hurt is the one that was, you know, 60B higher than the other one. And so I had to correct that. And with this uh, straw phonation, for example, you can learn how to make every bit as an efficient uh, voice, but with less uh, collision of the tissue and therefore more endurance. So kind of work the muscles a bit before you get into that busy, loud environment, like kind of build up some endurance, like distance training for your throat. Yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things I found most interesting when I was looking at your work and uh, looking at your career, you were not originally trained. I mean, you are a trained musician, but you were originally a physicist and an engineer. How did you end up where you are now? <laughs> well, I have gone two parallel paths all my life. Uh, I grew up in post-World War II Germany, and uh, we had very little available to us for entertainment. It was basically the radio that we listened to. And my oldest brother always fed me classical music, particularly opera and lieder. Uh, in German. And so I fell in love with those and I always wanted to sing them. And uh, my mother uh, sang folk songs. And so we sang together a lot in the home. Um, Then we became uh, immigrants to the United States. And I was still a little boy when I came to the U.S. And uh, my father said, well, you know, you have this new country now and you can uh, go into the sciences and uh, do yourself very well in that. Um, and so I considered uh, going into engineering, but I was never happy as an engineer. I worked for the Boeing company and for uh, North American Aviation and Rockwell and several companies like that. Um, but all the time I was sitting there working on problems that they gave me, what was in my head is uh, questions about the voice. Because I wanted to sing things that I didn't, weren't that easy for me. So at some point, about mid-20s, I decided, okay, I'm done with uh, you know, airplane engineering and things like that, and I'm just going to study the human voice. So I went back to a place called Brigham Young University where Harvey Fletcher had just semi-retired from Bell Telephone Laboratories. And I knew his name. He was famous, and I wanted to see what I could learn about voice acoustics from him. And that brought the two parallel paths into one, and it's been that way forever. (laughs) And do you feel that your training as an engineer has affected the way you study the voice? Has it kind of changed your approach at all? Well, sure. I mean, what you're disciplined in is uh, clearly uh, the way you look at problems. And uh, so um, you you become very skeptical of your own work. And uh, I find that as I work with artists, the whole business of artistry is to um, overplay. I mean, you have a simple song, but you make it more dramatic and more pleasant and more acceptable. Uh, so you overstate. In science, you do exactly the opposite. You go to a meeting and you understate. And you want to have your audience actually doubt, in some sense, what you're giving them, because that is science, is always to uh, disprove, not to prove. So there's a totally different mindset in the two disciplines. 
And putting that together in my field ha has been a challenge. I, I have to admit that. One of the things I also um, found amazing about your career is that you didn't just study human larynxes. You didn't just study the human voice. You have studied lion and tiger larynxes. <laughs> How did you get lion and tiger larynxes to study, and what on earth were you looking for? <laughs> yeah, my access to tiger and lion larynx came from the very unfortunate circumstance uh, when we had the floods in New Orleans. And uh, some of the zoos in that area had to get rid of their animals, and uh, they shipped them to other zoos. And uh, some uh, Siberian tigers ended up being transferred to Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, there was an individual there that knew that I was doing research on the voice. And uh, it was time for one or two of these animals to be put down because of age. And he just said, uh, do you want a, a, a tiger larynx? Have you ever worked with a tiger larynx? And I said, I don't even know what it looks like, but I'd like to see it. And uh, so I said, if you ship it to me, but not tell anybody that I asked for it, that this was your choice, not mine, because I'm very aware of uh, not using uh, rare species for experimentation. Um, but anyway, uh, that was the circumstance, and we got these larynxes. We put them on the laboratory bench and blew air through them and made them uh, make sounds. And uh, from that, I was able to learn enough to actually then make sounds with a simulation, a computer model of the tiger and the lion larynx, and was able to create that roar uh, perfectly uh, with the computer simulation. How does the lion or tiger larynx create a roar? How is it different from from what our, our larynxes are like, basically? They have a very uh, thick vocal fold. It's even sometimes called a, a vocal pad, and it's very parallel. The two vocal folds are very uh, parallel in terms of their surfaces. And, uh, and then there's also a fat layer inside, and uh, that makes the uh, vibration uh, very large and easy to, uh, to set into motion. But it becomes irregular because unlike in humans where we have uh, fibers that go along the length of the vocal folds and particularly a ligament uh, that we can put tension on, uh, in the tiger and lion, that is not what's there. It's the fat layer. So in some sense, the tiger and liar, <laughs> lion and tiger, I mean, larynx is kind of like that of a baby, a human baby. Uh, it is loud but irregular in the vibration. That is certainly about the strangest comparison of voices I think I have ever heard. <laughs> a tiger well, look and at, a baby. <laughs> what, what, but look at what the purpose is. The, 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 the baby cries to get attention. Uh, and, and so that roughness in the sound together with the loudness uh, makes you stop what you're doing and take care of it. The lion or the tiger uh, has the opposite need, but also it's about attention. They say, this is my territory. I want you out of here. So in both cases, it is a sound that is highly attention getting, and that's what they're looking for. And the morphology in the structure um, develops in order to uh, produce uh, what is needed uh, acoustically. Well, I have so many more questions, but we are completely out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Tietze. This has been amazing. It's my pleasure. 
If you'd like to learn more about Ingo Tietze's work with The Voice and more about how the singing voice works, we've linked to his site and information about his research at scienceforthepeople.ca. There you'll also find links to Twitter, Facebook, and Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe to the show and tell us what you think. We've also got a link to our Patreon, where you can support the hardworking podcast crew that brings our dulcet tones to you every week. If that's not in the cards, please spread the word. Tell your friends about what we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>